the cosmos that can stand against what God is doing through his son in building the church. And so we rightly call the church unstoppable because of what Jesus has promised. And we are in the, I imagine, still the opening chapters of a series uh, which is based in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, you will know, because you're good Bible students, that really the Acts of the Apostles should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And in the narrative that we are looking at this morning, I'll tell you what that is in a moment, uh, although there's no reference to the Holy Spirit as such, what happens in the verses that we're going to be looking at, it could not happen without the ministry, the powerful ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And although we might not be thinking about the Holy Spirit all the time, we cannot do without the Holy Spirit. We need more and more of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I would dare to say that we need the Holy Spirit to get out of bed in the morning. Because God is intimately involved in every part of our lives. So from morning till evening and all through, through the night, we need the Holy Spirit. And there's no limit to the times that we can ask the Holy Spirit to fill us. I've probably said it before, but you, you all know that D.L. Moody, the great uh, evangelist, uh, said, I've been filled with the Spirit, but I leak. And there's good precedent for that in, in the ministry of Jesus, when the woman with the issue of blood reached through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment, and Jesus stopped and said, Someone has touched me. And Peter speaking on behalf of the apostles, said, sorry, on behalf of the disciples at that time, I think. Um, so, well, of course people are touching you. You're in the midst of a crowd. He said, no, someone touched me with faith and I felt power go out of me. So that, that's why Jesus asked to be filled with the Spirit every day, constantly. And that really should be our own experience, our own aspiration. Uh, we're in the Acts of the Holy Spirit, uh, chapter 16, and uh, I've got a bit of an unusual passage to, to speak on. Uh, it's verse 16, chapter 16, verse 16 to verse 24. And um, let's just read it first. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. 
But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Just put that there for the moment. So we're in Philippi. We've been there for a few weeks now. It's in Macedonia, which is north of the Aegean. If you've been to Greece on your holiday, you will know roughly where that that is. Uh, Philippi is a Roman city with many retired legionaries, army veterans who've been granted plots of land in these frontier cities and uh, enjoying Roman laws and privileges. Those people who were Romans, uh, army vets, uh, it was as though, as expats, they were enjoying the benefits of Rome itself. So it's just like Margate's called Shoreditch on Sea. So uh, you could call Philippi, well it's hardly on the sea, but Philippi is Rome on sea, if, if you like. It's a little bit of Rome. And, uh, and as a result, there are very few Jews there and there is a strong sense of anti-Semitism, strong feeling against the Jews. And we know uh, that there's no synagogue there uh, because the meeting for prayer is down by the river. And... Uh, Clearly, because there's no synagogue, it means there are fewer than ten Jewish men there. So it seems to be the ladies who are having the prayer meeting, maybe one or two men, who knows. And it's there that that Paul engages with his first contacts in Philippi. And it's there that a church plant has been started. Lydia, you remember from Thyatira, Uh, she's a very successful businesswoman. She's uh, hundreds of miles away, away from her hometown, but she has given her life to the Lord Jesus. Wonderfully, it says, the Lord opened her heart. And even though she was already uh, embracing the truths of Judaism and the culture of Judaism, she was a a proselyte, a God-fearer. She hadn't obviously converted to Judaism. But even though she was as close as that to the truths of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the Father of the Lord Jesus, it still needed the Holy Spirit to come and open her heart. And her heart was opened and she opened her home. And that became, if you like, the base for the for this church plant, so we understand it. And so she gives Paul and his travelling companions accommodation in her own home, and it seems it includes Dr Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, the writer of the gospel that bears his name. Uh, He is a doctor. Uh, People think that because of his familiarity with naval terms, when he's describing the, the storm in the Mediterranean, 
he served as a medical officer in the Roman Navy. So there's a whole lot of things that we, we can put together. But somehow, through the purposes of God, his path has crossed with Paul's. Remember, Paul has a, a dream, a vision, when he's in Troas, uh, a man of Macedonia who says, come over and help us. Some people think that that man of Macedonia was Luke himself, uh, who, although he was, uh, his hometown was Antioch, back in Syria, uh, he'd now made Philippi his home. And it's, he's travelling back, it's amazing who you meet in airport terminals, isn't it? This is the sort of thing that's happened here. And he meets Paul. And we find that uh, in the passage that we're looking at today, uh, we, we encounter the first of three passages in Acts where it doesn't say they and he, but it says we. So Paul meets Luke, and Luke immediately includes himself in the narrative. That's fascinating, I think, because here's a man who could have remained objective and written about something from a distance, but he becomes fully involved. We find later, as we read on through Acts, that he's stays in Philippi when, Luke, uh, when, uh, when Paul mo moves on because he's still there when Paul returns to Philippi. And then Luke accompanies Paul all the way back to Jerusalem through his arrest, through his imprisonment and across the Mediterranean back to Rome. He recognises something in Paul that is worth giving his life for. Perhaps we should say he recognises that there is something in this Jesus that Paul talks about, who Paul talk, talks about, is worth giving your life for. And so he includes himself in the narrative. He's fully involved in the adventure. He's not a journalist on the sidelines seeing things from the safety of mere observation, but he's a committed Christian playing his full part in spreading the gospel and extending God's kingdom on earth. He's engaged in the daily activities of this baby church plant. And that begs the question, in the light of some of the teaching that we've received over recent Sundays, have we, each one, included ourselves in the narrative of what God is doing here in Beacon Church, Herne Bay. That's a nasty drone, isn't it? That's nice, sir. It's gone. Have, have we included ourselves in the narrative? Luke could genuinely say we when writing about his commitment. And commitment is a choice. Commitment isn't something that creeps up on us and uh, takes us by surprise. Commitment is a choice which we need the Holy Spirit to help maintain and develop in us. And so I ask this question. Have you fully included yourself in the narrative of what God is doing here? I 
Life is more than what we see, hear, feel and experience on a physical level. There are so many things in, in life that we can't explain. And it's quite clear that God has made us supernatural people who worship a supernatural God in a supernatural world, engaged in a supernatural battle. Born of the Spirit, we can relate to our supernatural God and experience his presence and his power. It's what we long for, not just through our whole days, but through particularly when we gather together as churches. As a church, we, we long to experience God's presence and his power. The scriptures say that we, if we're Christians, we've shared in the Holy Spirit. We've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. We've tasted it. Our appetite's been, been whetted. Like me, I'm sure you want to do more than just taste these things. You want to have more and more of the goodness of the Word of God, the presence of the Spirit, and the powers of the coming age. Paul recognises uh, elsewhere in his writings that our real struggle, you might find it a, a struggle to get out of bed in the morning, or to pay the bills, or to do all sorts of other things. But our real struggle, says Paul, this is in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities and powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We have a battle that is going on around us all the time. We don't necessarily see it, but we're engaged in a struggle against the evil one. But God provides spiritual armour so that we can stand our ground against the devil and his schemes. Even though he is a prowling lion seeking for someone to devour, there is a promise in scripture that if we resist him, he will flee from us. And so we are on the winning side. But we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to know the truth of Scripture. And we need to resist the evil one. Peter, uh, in his first letter, says, Resist him, this is the evil one, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And Paul encounters those sufferings in Philippi. He knows a truth, which he writes about in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul is a man of the Spirit, who is sensitive to and responsive to the Spirit's promptings. And either last week or the week before or the week before that, we had experience of Paul responding to the leading of the Spirit. He's, work, he's journeying across western Turkey. Uh, he wants to go into this province, but the Spirit of Jesus doesn't let him. He wants to go into 
this province, but um, he's not allowed to. And he responds to the Spirit's guidance all the time. We don't know exactly how the Spirit guided him. But clearly, the Holy Spirit wanted Paul in Troas, having a vision at night and going over into Europe. And so Paul is a man who is familiar with this struggle. One of the things that you have to bear in mind, of course, is it's not always easy to recognize the promptings of the Spirit from the enticements of the evil one. There's a, there's a struggle going on. And one of the great gifts that we need from God is the gift of discernment and insight and revelation. Paul has that. Paul has that. And just as he is developing a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, I must ask us a second question, which is, are you, are we, developing a sensitivity to the promptings of the Spirit that is becoming more and more finely tuned? Are we having to second-guess God all the time, or are we receiving more and more clarity of what the Holy Spirit wants us to do? The Holy Spirit is often very subtle. It's a little nudge which you can ignore. It might be a great big thump, which is harder to ignore, but we have this way of ignoring things like, like that because we want it spelled out in front of us. One of the things that Paul did when he had that vision of the man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us, he clearly discussed it with his team because Luke writes... And so we concluded that God wanted us to go to Macedonia. So we don't always have to struggle through to an answer by ourselves. We have brothers and sisters, we have the word of God, we have Christians around us who we, we can discuss things with and say, this, this is what I feel the Spirit is saying, what do you think? And uh, you need to make sure you ask godly, spirit-filled people so that you're singing from the same hymn sheet. And so we find here in Philippi, uh, on uh, their regular uh, journeys out of Philippi through the eastern gate, sorry, western gate, uh, out to where, where the river is uh, on the Ignatian Way, to go to the place of prayer, uh, this girl is, an, is, is, oh boy, every day perhaps, every day she is making a nuisance of herself. And Paul, having tolerated the outbursts of this demonized slave girl long enough, he discerns in the spirit that now is the time for Jesus to set this poor young woman free from the evil spirit that possesses and controls her. And he does that very simply and very easily. I don't know if you've ever been involved in deliverance ministry, but I can think of 20, 30 years ago where the approach seemed to be to shout your head off for hours. 
But here, Paul is simply taking the authority that he has in Christ, the authority and the power of the name of the risen Lord Jesus, and he simply commands this evil spirit to leave. And although the ESV says the spirit left within the hour or something like that, I don't think it took 59 minutes for that to happen. Other translations say immediately, immediately the spirit left. And it was very simple. And you will know from what Jesus has told the 12 and the 72 and the rest of us at the end of Matthew's Gospel, uh, that part of our discipleship responsibility and privilege is to cast out evil spirits from, from other people. Well, if they're in us, cast them out of ourselves. Um, it's a normal thing. It's as normal, or it sh should be, as raising the dead. And the gospel writers talk about raising the dead, quoting Jesus, as though it is the most natural thing in the world. Healing the sick, raising the dead, uh, cleansing le lepers, and casting out evil spirits. And we, we think, I think, I'm sure you do, these things are awesome. These are for other people to do. Gosh, we, we need some specialists. We, we need the spiritual SAS to come in and, and sort this out. But Jesus is telling who to do these things. All of us. And we can hide behind the word us instead of using the word me. Me. That's one of the challenges of what Paul encounters and deals with in Philippi, that's one of the challenges for us. Notice he didn't just barge in. He took his time. He discerned what needed happening in the spirit. And so, in, as we've said, in the name and authority of Jesus, he commands the spirit to leave. And he uses this gift of spiritual discernment and he recognises in the girl, the work of this spirit of divination. And so he uses the spiritual gifts that he has at his disposal. He receives from God spiritual discernment, spiritual insight to know what he is dealing with. And with a direct command, he sets the girl free. In Ephesians 1 verse 17 and following, Part of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is, May the Father give you, it's a plural you, because he's writing to the church in Ephesus, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know. And then he lists some th things that God wants us to know, which he implies you can't know without a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. If you're inviting a non-Christian in for a coffee one morning, you need the Holy Spirit to know how to 
lead the conversation. How to respond, what to say, what not, not to say. You need that wisdom and revelation. We can so often barge in. But Paul here in Philippi, he doesn't barge in, he waits. And so, like Paul, we cannot live without the Spirit. Like a good guest, the Spirit always comes into our lives with gifts. He never comes empty-handed. But so often we try to tackle life's challenges empty-handed with simply our own human wisdom and experience. Now, over time, we can build up our wisdom and our experience. But we mustn't rely on that in separation from the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 2 verse 4, the writer says, God bore witness to the gospel, such a great salvation, by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God has distributed his spiritual gifts here. If you have been baptised in the Spirit and you've asked for gifts, perhaps even haven't asked, God will give you gifts. God has given you gifts. If you've got spiritual gifts, then I guess you know what they are. In Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens, what did Oliver Twist do when the porridge ran out in his bowl? He asked for some more. He got him into a lot of trouble, but he asked for some more. And we need to have that same attitude. I'm going to give you four Bible passages now, which will tell you what the named spiritual gifts are. He was. He was. Poor boy. 1 Corinthians 12... Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. I won't tell you the verses because it means you've got to read the whole chapter and find out for yourself and find out the context of them. But those are four very important passages that list spiritual gifts. And so this begs a question. This is our third question this morning. Are you using the spiritual gifts that the Spirit has given you. Do you know, one of the things I forget to do is to speak in tongues. And every time I remember I've forgotten to speak in tongues, I start speaking in tongues. It's such a wonderful gift, but if, if you have the gift of tongues, I would encourage you to use it. Scripture tells us that the one who prophesies builds up the church, but the one who speaks in tongues builds up or edifies himself or herself. So you are doing yourself a power of good when you speak in tongues. And if you have situations to pray about and you haven't got a clue how to pray about them, pray in tongues. And the Holy Spirit will pray through your mouth what is on God's heart for that situation. You may not know what you're praying, probably won't. There's a, a story of, um, oh, I've forgotten his first name, Pit Pilavachi. 
Mike Pilavachi. He was preaching somewhere and um, he found himself speaking in a tongue that he'd not spoken before. And uh, just before that, there was a Romanian guy who was fed up with the whole of this meeting and he was walking out. He wasn't going to have anything to do with it. And he heard Mike Pilavachi speaking in ancient Romanian. And what he was saying was some ancient Romanian poem or hymn that had been tattooed on this Romanian guy's granddad's back. And as a child, he'd learnt this, he knew it. And God used this tongue to arrest this guy, bring him back into the meeting. He gets saved and filled with the Spirit. And it's astonishing, isn't it? What can come out of your mouth if it's surrendered to the Holy Spirit? And I'm sure some of you have had exciting experiences like that yourselves. The schemes of the devil are many and varied. And in this passage that we're looking at, in Acts 16, verses 16 to 24, just in case you've forgotten where we were, um, we, we have an example of both of these approaches. We have an enemy who hates us. He wants to devour us. And he has a far-ranging repertoire of approaches. They tend to divide into two broad types. Those that are subtle, undermining temptation, and those that are open and blatant, which are in your face. So an example of what is subtle is when you hear a half-truth, and you think, oh, perhaps I should be believing that. But you need to go back to the scriptures and find out if it is a half-truth or a whole-truth. And if it's a half-truth, you have nothing to do with it. You obviously want to live according to the whole truth. So a half-truth. Something that's blatant is when suddenly it's as though all hell breaks loose around you and Satan seems to be inciting up vicious persecution. And we've got examples of both of these in this passage. So in the incident with the demonized slave girl, we see Satan's subtle and low-key approach. She's gone on day after day after day. And she's, what she is saying, these are servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. It seems to mesh in and reinforce what Paul has been saying. The citizens of Philippi, being pagans, would have understood the Most High God to be Zeus, the king of the gods of Olympus, the great Greek pantheon. The Most High God is a term never used of God in either the Old or the New Testaments, apparently. So she is not talking about Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And what she is probably saying as well is they are proclaiming to you a way of salvation. A way, that's how it's translated in some uh, translations. They're proclaiming to you a way of salvation. And of course, a way of salvation is one of many. You have to remember, of course, that this girl is possessed by a spirit who deceives. The spirit that she's possessed by cannot know the truth. Um, Only God, the Holy Spirit, knows the truth. She's possessed by a spirit who's often represented by a python. Um, and that, to my mind, speaks very clearly of the, of the evil one who masqueraded as a serpent in the Garden of Eden. So, although she seems to be speaking the truth, we have grounds for saying it's a half-truth. She's not telling the truth. And finally, Paul has had enough. Irritated, exasperated, annoyed. He really feels that now he's got to do something about it. The gospel is being misrepresented. God is being misrepresented. And so he discerns that the time has come for something to happen. And so he silences in the power of the spirit this deceiving, misleading spirit. And one of the results, of course, is the girl is set set free. She probably becomes part of the church plant as well. It's quite a mixture, isn't it? Luke, a doctor, sophisticated, intellectual, intelligent. Uh, Lydia, uh, very uh, prosperous businesswoman with a big, big home and staff of her own. Uh, And a slave girl. It's exciting, isn't it? That's what church plants are like. Just look at the person you're sitting next to. Um, you, You... It's like that. Now, the passage that we're looking at this morning ends with a much more blatant approach, really in your face, which is the incitement to persecution. Paul and Silas have clearly uh, been separated from uh, Luke and Timothy. They've been recognised as Jews. Paul is the ringleader. People in Philippi tend not to like Jews, so um, they're misapprehended, mistreated. Uh, And the thing that we know about Paul and Silas, which uh, no one else seems to at this time, is that they are Roman citizens. How you prove that, I don't know. I don't think you had passports, I don't think you had a tattoo on your arm. But clearly the, the laws were so stringent that if you claimed to be a citizen and you weren't, Something nasty happened to you. And if you mistreated someone who was a Roman citizen, something nasty happened to you as well. So clearly it was a privileged position that you didn't admit to lightly. And somehow, in the midst of the uproar, because you get the impression there's all hell breaking loose, as the, the, the mob get, get hold of them and... Uh, those in charge, uh, the rulers, uh, seem not to want to do anything about it, um, except join in. Um, 
In the, in the uproar, perhaps their statements of being Roman citizens are not heard, or perhaps, again, led by the Spirit, Paul chooses to keep quiet. He's not going to play this trump card. He could, but he didn't. He's led by the Spirit to keep quiet. He's going to play it later to the advantage of the new church plant. So what we find here in this persecution is that a stand for righteousness has consequences. And that is true in your life, I expect, where you've taken a stand for righteousness, sometimes nasty things have happened to you. Suffering is part and parcel of discipleship. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 10 to 13, you know all about my persecution and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra. Interestingly, he doesn't mention Philippi. <laughs> Amazing. Perhaps the list is too, too long. It seemed to, uh, persecution followed him wherever he went. Uh, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Now that's an interesting thing, isn't it? He says, knowing the overwhelming sovereignty of God, the Lord rescued me from all of them, but it's not necessarily he rescued me so that they didn't happen, he rescued me from the midst of them, or he rescued me after they'd happened. When he is stoned and apparently dead, he's raised to life again. And he says, the Lord rescued me. It's an amazing mindset, isn't it? That He goes through tough times, but he says, the Lord rescues me. How do I know the Lord's rescued me? Because I'm still alive today. I'm still alive today. The Lord has rescued me. And he goes on in this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I remember as a teenager, I thought, right, well, I'm just going to turn that page over. I don't like the look of that. I'm not very fond of it now. But it's a challenge, isn't it? Everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. What does the fact that we are not being persecuted perhaps tell us? That we're hiding our light under a bushel. That we are wearing so much camouflage, people don't know we're Christians. Perhaps we're so intimidated by the world around us, we're not speaking up for truth and righteousness there's an awful lot in this world that we can speak up against and it is becoming more and more difficult to be a Christian I believe in this country and certainly increasingly difficult around the world our brothers and sisters all over the world um, are getting slaughtered and are oh, it's absolutely terrible. In fact, sometimes I get these Christian missionary magazines and I don't like to read them because it's so horrific 
what is happening to our, our brothers and sisters. But Paul also says in uh, to Timothy, he says, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We can't do it, we can't endure persecution in our own strength. We need the power of God. And he throws in this little phrase, like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We often don't see ourselves as good soldiers. Particularly if we are retired, we think, well, my soldiering's done now. I've got this nice little plot of land in Philippi which I can just dig because I'm not in the legion anymore. But actually, until we die, we are soldiers of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you might get bullied at school, bullied at work. You might get insulted, cold-shouldered, overlooked for promotion, abused, cheated, lied about, falsely accused, and on and on and on. All sorts of things could happen to you because you're a Christian. But what Paul says in Romans 5 is we glory in our sufferings. In Romans 8 he says that I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And Peter in his first letter in chapter 4 says, Dear friends, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So suffering is not unusual. If it is unusual, then something unusual is happening in our lives. And you will have to seek God about that. I will have to seek God about that because... I don't feel that I suffer for my Christianity. I don't feel that I encounter persecution. And yet it does seem to be a normal part of what happened to the disciples in the Acts of the Apostles. And so I finish by asking my last question. was interesting um, I won't tell you which number it is because I think I've left one out so, um, but, but here's another qu- question do we have do you have a biblical understanding of the place of persecution and suffering in the life of the Christian do, do we understand what the Bible says about, about it do you do I expect to suffer as a Christian or do I wear Do you wear enough camouflage to avoid doing so? Are you avoiding the obedience that would lead to suffering? Because I think if we did everything that the Holy Spirit nudges us and prompts us to do, we'd not only find the people of peace, but we'd also find the people of non-peace that we were hearing about last week. Now that's a strange note to end on, isn't it? Am I suffering enough as a Christian? 
But it's there in Scripture. It was Paul's experience. It was Jesus' experience. It's the experience of Christians all around the world. Maybe it has been in small ways in our lives. Maybe it will increase in coming days. Who knows? But Paul was able to take the stand he did. He was able to have the mindset he had because he knew Jesus and he was filled with the Spirit. And those are the same two answers, if you like, for us. To have a spirit of insight and revelation that we might know him more and to constantly be filled with the Spirit so that we're responding to what God wants us to do in the power and the wisdom of the Spirit and in the authority of the name of Jesus. I'll leave that with you. Paul is in prison. His feet are in the stocks. You've got to wait till next week before he gets out. If he gets out, I wonder if he gets out. Who knows? David will open that up to us next week. Let's just pray.